Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. In the closed confines of the prison system, it is very difficult to do discovery. Uh, If we want to speak with prisoners, for instance, we go to a place where life or death decisions are made over them by the people we are suing. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is uh, Steve Lowry with, along with my co-host, Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today or, or how are you feeling today? I'm, I'm feeling pretty good, although as you can see, because we're doing this on video conference, but our listeners can't, I'm wearing a black turtleneck today and I'm also wearing jeans and white tennis shoes. Okay. <laughs> and so I've been getting a lot of Steve Jobs comp- comments oh, yeah, yeah. starting yeah. very early. Um, well, you're aspiring to the top. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm really dialed in for today's episode. Well, Yvonne, I made the mistake of, uh, uh, of uh, agreeing to play in a softball tournament this weekend. Today is Monday. Our listeners don't know that, um, but I played on Saturday and uh, I'm in an embarrassing amount of pain right now um, <laughs> from just playing some softball. And it just you know, really shows uh, how old I'm getting. So compared to our firm softball game, <laughs> much, much less competitive, much more friendly. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. Right, right, exactly. I mean, some people, I'm not going to mention who, uh, you know, tend to get a little, a little overly com- uh, competitive in our firm softball games. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not looking in the mirror right now. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, my wife was accusing me of walking, walking like a little old man this weekend. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, um, Yvonne, we have two, uh, fantastic trial lawyers on today and, uh, are talking, uh, about a case, which is just shocking. And, and we'll get into the facts here in a second. But I mean, as I was reading the facts of this case, I'm really sitting here thinking about like, this is straight out of a movie. This is something you think of, um, uh, you know, Shawshank Redemption or the, the TV show Oz that was on. I mean, really just egregious activities, uh, really terrible for, um, the uh, victim in this case, uh, who were who are still being represented by uh, by two fantastic lawyers who did a great job uh, for him and his family, but in really just uh, tra- tragic circumstances. Yeah, and I mean, I I know we're going to get into it, but we always talk we talk a lot on our episodes about how um, a lot of the injured people or their fa- or their families are put in somewhat helpless situations where ha- they have to trust other people or their their um, ability to control an outcome or certain situations is limited by the, you know, the institution or whatever setting that they're in. But that's, this is probably the case where that is the most true. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it really just feels like, uh, you know, I'll I'll let uh, our two guests before we just keep going on and uh, talking about it when we really know very little about it compared to the two of them. But, um, but it just, I mean, the helplessness that uh, I can imagine for both um, um, Daquan Wallace and his mother uh, in this case, just, uh, just, it's really, really just a a terrifying um, set of circumstances. And we'll talk in detail about it. But let me introduce our two uh, two guests. So we've got Carrie Hansel and Larry Greenberg. Carrie and Larry and uh, are uh, in two different firms in Baltimore, Maryland. Carrie Hansel is a partner in the Hansel Law PC, and you can look him up at Hansel, that's H-A-N-S-E-L, Law 
Group.com. And Larry Greenberg is a partner in Greenberg Law Offices, also in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, and you can look him up at GreenbergLawyers.com. Um, so let me just, uh, I'll start off with you, Carrie. You, uh, um, are, so our listeners know who we're talking to, but Carrie has been uh, twice uh, chosen as trial lawyer of the year by the Maryland Association of Justice, uh, including just, I think, in this, in this last year. Uh, he specializes in trial work in, in all aspects of, of injury law, but has uh, especially done well uh, in areas of civil rights, constitutional law, and government liability. Uh, Carrie represented a case that uh, held the Prince George's County Police Department uh, liable for some abuse and set uh, some new standards for uh, for the law and admissibility of evidence uh, of admitting evidence of pattern and practice by uh, law enforcement to show a pattern and practice of violating constitutional rights uh, has also um, uh, been involved in several high-profile cases, including uh, representing a whistleblower uh, from the SEC, uh, who basically uh, was reporting some security breaches and ethical violations and got wrong, wrongly terminated. Uh, Carrie represented that person and did a fantastic job. And then what I thought was really uh, interesting, and, and Carrie, one thing I noticed from your resume is it doesn't sound like you like to take on uh, the easy cases. Um, but, uh, no, there, there wouldn't be any point in that. Right, right, exactly. I, um, I, the, the one I noticed was that you represented uh, the Humane Society in an animal cruelty case, and you were successful in um, stopping the use of steel-jawed leg hold traps um, in representing the Humane Society, and and uh, that's just a, a labor of love and uh, and and great work. And I should I should say, Carrie uh, is asked to speak all over the country about trial strategy, about civil rights, about constitutional law, and and government liability. And uh, and Carrie, we're we're uh, so happy to have you on. Steve, it's our honor. Thank you so much. So, and your your co-counsel in this case uh, was Larry Greenberg, and Larry uh, is also a tremendously successful lawyer up in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Larry is a past president of the Maryland Association of Justice, um, and uh, is a graduate from Boston University and the um, and in law school at the University of Baltimore. Uh, and he is a professor, an adjunct professor in trial advocacy at the University of Baltimore. He specializes in all area of uh, serious injury work, including uh, trial work, product liability, medical malpractice, uh, trucking, and also in um, the uh, uh, um, police abuse cases, I should, I should call them. He's been selected as a super lawyer numerous times, has been chosen as a national trial lawyer's top 100, and, uh, and is, uh, from what I can tell, is heavily involved in a number of different charities and, and just helping out in the community as well. So, Larry, we are uh, we're, uh, very pleased to have you on the show as well. Thanks, Stephen Avon. So, um, so yeah, so this case, you know, as uh, like I said, as I was reading it, I mean, it's just one of those things that's shocking. Um, I, I'm going to give a brief overview of the facts and then where I screw it up, you guys can, uh, can tell me where I messed it up. But uh, from what I can tell is your, your client was Daquan Wallace and, and his mother. And Daquan was uh, 20 years old, um, active, uh, um, you know, um, 
athletic, uh, seemed to be a, a relatively good kid, but he was arrested on some nonviolent charges. And I, I was one of my questions was to find out what exactly he was arrested on. But he, he was arrested on some nonviolent uh, charges and was put into pretrial detention uh, because he didn't have enough money to get out on bail. Um, and he goes to the Baltimore City Detention Center. And from what I read there, uh, you, it's hard to make this stuff up. I mean, this is this is the um, what you hear about in uh, watching movies and uh, watching TV shows where they talk about abuses at uh, at jail facilities or at detention centers. But essentially, uh, the Baltimore City Detention Center had been taken over by the um, black guerrilla family gang and. Um, Basically, the uh, many of the detention officers uh, or corrections officers were working in concert with gang members in order to um, uh, smuggle drugs in, uh, in order to allow assaults, batteries, even some rapes. Uh, and I think at some point I read that there were over, tw- um, I think over 20 or, or 30 uh, corrections officers who were either fired or maybe even indicted on some charges of working with gang members in the facility. Um, and so what happens is Daquan gets sent to this facility and he's put into uh, one of the uh, what I took from it, one of the lower security level areas seem to be relatively safe. Uh, and I, I, I use the word relatively because uh, he was being um, uh, attacked. He was being beaten. He, he one of the times when he showed up in court uh, had uh, obvious bruises uh, on his uh, face and head. And so he and his mom were both uh, basically complaining about it and complained to um uh, three officers uh, at the facility about um, uh, him being attacked and seeing what they could do to um, ensure his safety. And and he was, from my understanding, was specifically being attacked because he would not join uh, the Black Gorilla family gang. Uh, and these, it, it, it's hard to say from the evidence, but I'll let you guys talk about it more. But it sounds like these three officers basically worked in concert, maybe with some of the gang members in order to take some revenge on uh, Daquan for maybe speaking out a little bit too much. And so they had him transferred to another part of the prison, which was uh, uh, higher level security, but uh, involved uh, more dangerous uh, uh, prisoners that he was with. Um and under very suspicious circumstances in, in October of 2014 was taken um, to a, a, a jail cell. Uh, the entire block was cleared so that they could go to dinner except for Daquan and then except for what sounded like two other jail cells. Uh, and that um, basically nobody knows exactly what happened except that um, when uh, Daquan's uh, bunkmate came back, uh, just finds him uh, unconscious, unresponsive, uh, bloody, uh, with, with blood splatter on the wall, uh, and, um, had just been severely beaten and, um, beaten to the point that he was in a coma for several months, um, that he, uh, and I'm assuming still to this day is unable to stand, unable to walk, unable to speak, although he can't communicate in some ways, but just uh, severe brain damage and severely injured. And so the case that you uh, have, I should say it's, um, it was called Wallace versus the state of Maryland, and it involves 
um, a violation of constitutional rights and, their, and uh, violation of their duty to protect Daquan when he's in their custody. And the result of the case um, in state court, in the, um, in the Baltimore City Court, uh, was a $25 million verdict, um, $10 million of which was associated with a violation of constitutional rights and then $15 million uh, associated with um, negligence. And, um, and just a, a fantastic result, uh, a, a fantastic um, um, work by both of you in just this very troubling case. And uh, we can get into a, a lot of the facts of the case, but I, I think I've uh, covered the basics of the, uh, of, of, of the case. Is that fair to say? Uh, hey, this is Kerry Hansel. I, I think you're uh, spot on in terms of the basics. You know, if, you, if you'd like, I can fill in some of what our investigation found. I, you know, I mean, that, that's one thing I would love to hear because, uh, you know, it, it, it sounded like there was, even though, um, you know, when you were presenting the case to the jury and the, the duty is that they have a duty to protect you, it sounds like the state really, or the, the investigative agencies, I should say, really were never exactly sure of what happened to Daquan other than the fact that he was left unattended. Obviously, somebody got in there and then, and then uh, brutally attacked him. Well, listen, there's a real sense in which the government doesn't want to know in these cases. There's a real right. sense in which uh, the back is turned on uh, people like Daquan Wallace and other people in society uh, who are in some ways less fortunate. So that's very much what happened here. I mean, once we got involved, uh, first of all, the transfer that you mentioned when he was transferred from the safer area to the more dangerous area is made on trumped up charges. Ultimately, uh, the officer who signed those charges had to admit that they were trumped up, that they were false. Uh, her superior said that it never should have resulted in a transfer, that even if they were true, he should have been put in protective custody uh, in a room by himself. After that transfer is made, he's received by an officer who accepts the paperwork that is problematic, that isn't properly signed off on, that officer then is the only person in charge of that tier. Uh, he is the only person with the keys. He violates a policy that is so important to the prison that it's written on a poster on the wall that's about two feet by three feet that says everyone on that tier should go to dinner. Uh, and instead, he holds back to Quan Wallace and another cell. He's the sole officer with the keys to open those cells. Everyone goes to dinner. Uh, when the roommate comes back, Daquan is in a coma, and some of Daquan's blood is found uh, in the other cell that was held back. And when asked at trial, how is it that Daquan ended up in this coma? How is it that his blood ended up in another cell if, in fact, these cells remained locked, given that you were the only person with the key, officer? How did this happen? And he said... I must have let out uh, these individuals and I must have opened the door to Daquan's cell if wow. uh, that's what happened. And so that was the admission at trial and ultimately a very explosive moment that led to a very just verdict. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? 
I think I know where you're going with this and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means. And they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. Well, and, and I noticed that same officer who was, and this is one thing I, I was having a little trouble understanding, but so that same officer who was in the uh, new area, which was the um, the men's detention center, it, it, it sounded like he had been in the other area where Daquan was before. So it's sort of like he helped transfer him and then he was there to receive him. Is Is that right? So some of the evidence we had of a conspiracy includes exactly that. Uh, early in the morning, the officer works with the individuals who falsified the charges against Daquan and with Daquan. And at one point during account, certainly came eye to eye with Daquan. Uh, and then uh, Daquan is transferred. That same officer works a double shift and is on both the sending and receiving end. And what is particularly problematic about that is all of the independent officers uninvolved in this transfer said that had they been presented with this paperwork, which did not have supervisory approval, they would have rejected the transfer because it was required to have the supervisor's approval. So the fact that he was on both the sending and receiving end, and the fact that the paperwork should have resulted in a rejection of the transfer, we believe evidenced a conspiracy to uh, transfer this man to make sure that this attack could occur. The attack itself happens 20 minutes or less from when he hits the tier, long before he could have had an opportunity to interact with anyone there, long before they might have developed any kind of beef against him, and at a point in time when it's very clear that uh, they're lying in wait for Daquan uh, when he arrives on that tier. So when you read those facts together, you see there's a strong implication that uh, the officers knew they were making this transfer in violation of the rules and knew that they were making this transfer for the purpose of the attack. And certainly, as uh, the officer overseeing that tier himself admitted a trial, the only way this attack could occur is if he opened that door. And that is exactly what the jury found happened in this case. How much of this, um, in reading the complaint, it's it, it really... Um, has a very sort of detailed outline of who was involved and what happened and when it happened. And I'm curious how much you, you all were able to learn um, before filing the case and how you were able to learn it. I, I noticed in the complaint that the U.S. Attorney's Office had done an investigation into sort of, I guess, the co corruption and, and gang control at this detention center. But I'm, I'm wondering what you were able to pull from that, what you were able to pull through, I guess, you know, a form of open records requests um, and then um, because it seems like from this complaint unless this is an amended one I'm looking at that 
you were able to really um, uncover a lot at the when you filed the case. So, Yvonne, this is Larry Greenberg. Um, to answer that question, there was about 50-50 before and after suit was filed. There was an amended complaint, but it wasn't tremendous based on the information. Ultimately, what occurred through the Freedom of Information Act before suit was filed was we learned essentially who was president, uh, present and some other issues. And, and something to follow up on what um, Steve and Carrie were talking about, interestingly enough, to look at the end result, uh, and while the trial is still going on both in state and federal, none of the officers involved, the correctional officers were sanctioned, none were charged. In fact, one of them that was just discussed, he, when he left, not fired, but when he left, he is now a police officer in another county. Mm. And the problem is they knew all of these. Now, some people went on their way and early retired, but not one was sanctioned. And that's the problem with this situation. It's a, right. uh, a continued practice and pattern of systemic uh, deficiencies. And um, I'm not sure if you both know, but ultimately, soon after this occurred, the governor shut down the uh, detention center uh, I, because of what was going on with the gangs and the guards. Yeah, I saw that in there. They, that uh, I mean, and, and that's uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you all about is uh, I saw that the the next year, the following year after Daquan's attack, uh, the uh, governor uh, shuttered uh, the detention center. Um, talk, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to hear about, you know, not only what you learned through your investigation, but also what you were able to present at trial as sort of the uh, evidence of, of a pattern and practice of these guards uh, basically working together with gang members uh, for all sorts of criminal activity? Well, so essentially here, what we proved is, and not, not to repeat what Carrie said, essentially how through the course of time that Daquan was an inmate there, and solely the only reason he was an inmate, he could not afford the bail. Uh, this was a misdemeanor crime. This was what most people, especially in today's world, with there's been a change in the bail reform, um, he would have been out. But instead, because he was young, because he had a family on the outside, they preyed on him as a means of um, the way they did it at the time. They would prey on these young people to get the family to bring in certain contraband. So, you know, that was one of the problems here. Daquan would not do it, and that's what led to this, uh, you know, attack on him. To answer your question, the answer is pretty simple. It's their stories did not stand up. They didn't make sense. The more they said it, the less it was believed. And at the end of the day, even the uh, counsel for the state, there were two of them, it just, the story did not hold up, and the jury resented their approach of trying to defend it. Yeah, I, that was one of my questions. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to skip around too much to the end, but I was wondering sort of how the case was defended. And, and I, looking at the, the opening a little bit and the closing, I, I understand the strategy of pointing to the burden of proof and that it's the plaintiff's burden of proof to, to, Establish the case, but it it seemed without being there, just reading it, it seemed like they, the defense emphasized so much of 
we don't have to prove anything. We don't have to prove this. We don't have to prove that, that it, it seemed to me, given what had happened in the case, like it was just more like that would have really backfired as far as feeling like it's just turning a blind eye and not investigating something that should have been investigated. Well, listen, let's be, this is Carrie again. Let's be clear. The defense had the very difficult job of defending the indefensible. There is no fair or righteous answer to what happened here. Uh, what happened here was a horrible miscarriage of any sense of justice. And so that comes out and is clear in their efforts uh, to respond because there is no response. What do you say to the family of a man who sits there in a wheelchair, uh, unable to speak, who has control over his left arm, uh, who, whose crime involved uh, stealing a few items, the most expensive of which was a TV remote control, uh, who was in the situation he was in because he's not privileged enough to be from a family who could scrape together uh, his $800 bail, uh, who is there because he refused to join a gang, refused to call on family members to mule in drugs and contraband, and tried to do once he was in this facility what was right, and in response took repeated beatings that everyone in the system observed. So we had testimony from uh, guards. We had testimony that uh, they were observed, his injuries were observed by a judge from the stand during a hearing. Uh, so this is a case where this man was being subjected, young man was being subjected to really repeated and brutal attacks. And there was a system-wide failure of any reasonable response. And how do you defend that? It was in effect, uh, indefensible, but a significant part of that uh, involves the pretrial approach to the case. Uh, this was a situation where, uh, on its face now, looking back with uh, hindsight, we see the case that was built, but not all the bricks in the wall that it took to build it. A, a large part of it is anticipating and foreclosing the opportunity uh, at, at trial for the defense to really be able to defend the case. And that work happens, as we all know, in depositions uh, and in discovery. So we had to, at every step of the way, anticipate a defense. Uh, might the defense argue, for instance, here uh, that the uh, other people had access to open or close these jail doors? And so you have to obviously foreclose everyone other than the one officer on duty in that tier. Might the defense argue that uh, Mr. Wallace, in fact, uh, committed the wrongs for which he was transferred. Uh, so for instance, there, they, he was transferred for allegedly uh, uh, defrauding other prisoners of their phone privileges. Well, uh, as you might expect, the jail records phone calls. So we obtained every single phone call uh, that Daquan made or that included his voice, and we were able to demonstrate that in fact, he had not done uh, what they had alleged with respect to the misuse of other people's phone privileges. So, but what it required was uh, almost two years of very carefully uh, building the case and foreclosing uh, any opportunity to defend. So when you look at the result at trial, it looks like what we had from the beginning was a, a indefensible case, when in fact, uh, what it takes to build an indefensible case is to foreclose every single possibility 
And, and I think the result at trial in opening and closing arguments uh, that you see is a result of the very laborious practice over uh, the course of two years of work of carefully closing every single door through which the defense might slip away. And, and that's our approach. And it's extremely uh, time consuming and laborious, uh, but we think that's what our clients deserve. Yeah, and, and and certainly, I mean, it's what you have to do in every case, and and uh, and and y'all did a great job. I did notice in the in the opening, uh, you said that the uh, lieutenant uh, was going to come in and admit that all of the um, charges uh, or the reason why they had transferred uh, Dequan were uh, made up that he'd never done that. And then I noticed in the closing, uh, you you said that the lieutenant was contradicting herself. Um, so I'm guessing she must have recanted on that or, 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 you know, not admitted that he, or, or said that he was violating it. And, um, you know, so that's something I think every lawyer thinks about and it happens all the time at trial is, you know, how do you handle a, uh, witness who all of a sudden changes their testimony from when their deposition is talk, talk a little bit about how you handled that witness, if that's indeed what happened. Sure. So that is what happened. We had a, uh, deposition transcript in which the Lieutenant, admitted that uh, Daquan had not committed any of the wrongdoing that she used as an excuse to transfer him to the more dangerous area where he could be attacked. Uh, I opened by saying we had that transcript, we do in fact. Uh, then at trial, the lieutenant, I think, made a horrible mistake. Uh, I think it's always a horrible mistake uh, to change your story. The blessing that my client had right. was when you're telling the truth, you don't have to change your story because right. the truth doesn't change. Uh, but she took what I think was a terrible uh, tactical decision and decided to change her story. Uh, and so obviously at that point, we confront the witness with the deposition, remind the witness that they were under oath when they gave that testimony, remind the witness that it was closer in time so that likely to the extent there's a difference in recollection, their recollection was likely better in the deposition, remind the witness that in the deposition when they were shown documents to support uh, their testimony at that point in time, and then challenge the witness to uh, explain why it is their uh, uh, recollection is different. In this case, this particular witness admitted uh, that more than once her, her uh, testimony differed and was contradictory with her testimony in deposition, and she was unable to come up with a meaningful uh, uh, explanation as to why the change had occurred. Uh, and what that takes ultimately, is very careful trial preparation. So we have trial notes, and when we have an adverse witness like a lieutenant who authorized a transfer that uh, sentenced our client to a life in a wheelchair, uh, we know that that uh, person is going to do everything they can to avoid responsibility for their actions. And so we have an outline that literally pegs every single question we're going to ask, either to a document or to prior deposition testimony. So the moment the witness uh, differs in any substantive way from either the documents or the deposition testimony, we put our hands immediately on that testimony, go immediately to that page and confront them uh, instantaneously so the jury can see uh, the difference and understand and appreciate uh, the distinction in the testimony. And that relies mostly uh, on many hours of pretrial preparation uh, and have it an outline for which every single question is tied to a document or uh, a deposition page. And we go directly to it and do that. And it's a very effective technique 
uh, for both revealing that the witness is changing their story and therefore uh, potentially being untruthful, uh, but also for illustrating to the jury the depth of your own preparation and belief in your case. Ultimately, uh, it's important to communicate to the jury, as we do in every case, uh, you know, our own uh, belief in the strength of, of what our client has to say. Related to that, did you all, um, I mean, all the things that you were able to sort of establish and the potential defenses that you were able to chase down, um, you know, for the jury, were these all, did y'all have everybody come in and testify live? Did you do a mix of live and video? Uh, no, all the witnesses were live. And to follow up on something, it's Larry again, uh, <laughs> something that uh, Carrie had just mentioned. One of the bigger elements, and we have this in some cases uh, where witnesses vary from their deposition testimony or, or discovery responses, answers to interrogatories, et cetera. In this particular case, however, it wasn't just the lieutenant who changed their testimony. There were three in a row where literally it was black and white, you know, completely different testimony. And so to answer your question, Steve, um, that is a trial lawyer's, uh, well, I don't want to be crude, but that is the best possible thing you can ever ask for because you turn around and it's like, are you kidding me? You know, it's yeah. like you look at and say, come on now, you think anybody's going to believe you? And that's one person. And then two, and then three. And ultimately, the suggestion could become, in other cases as well, did counsel change you, put you up to this? And, you know, the jury is sitting stone's throw away from us. They hear everything, even, you know, they hear everything. They see body language. They watch you as the trial lawyer, uh, in terror, or I'm sorry, questioning somebody. And they know darn well what's going on. And that's exactly what happened here. Yeah, and you're exactly right. I mean, one of those uh, things, it's it's almost a gift from the other side when they start yes. doing that because, um, and, you know, we have this saying that uh, never get more angry than the jury allows you to get. And, uh, you know, that's one of those instances where the jury, you can start to see a jury change. And I'm assuming you saw a jury, you know, where they start getting maybe visibly annoyed or upset with, uh, with the other side if they're uh, not being truthful with them. Yeah, I'll tell you, the jury was, uh, they were good poker players. We couldn't <laughs> yeah. read them. Uh, there was a whole bunch of crying when the case was done. You know, the hugging the, hugging the client, hugging us. Um, you know, the importance is to do justice for the family and to, ju to do justice for the system. Yeah. Uh, when the system fails, we all lose. And so that's the biggest problem with these types of cases. Yeah, I wanted to ask, um, I mean, I found it kind of shocking that nobody got any sort of criminal charges out of this. And I also, and I was also just wondering, um, the, the, you identified in the opening and closing what cells were left there during the dinner time and that there had been uh, Daquan's bloody clothes found there. Did you ever talk to the people that were in those cells and, and even they weren't charged criminally? Yeah, no, they were not charged criminally in, it, in this particular case that those individuals were not spoken with. Uh, we have another, or I have another case going on right now where it's the identical thing with the difference that I'm unable to prove, and it's unfortunate, I'm unable to prove the, um, the internal turmoil that happened with Daquan. I, you know, sometimes you just can't prove it. 
uh, sometimes people just get assaulted, abused, killed, and their families go, um, uh, I hate the word compensated, but justice never occurs because through one issue or another, you're unable to prove it. In this case, things through hard work, I will tell you, I haven't seen Kerry work this hard since his uh, sex for repair scandal, uh, where he went after, that was Baltimore City, correct? Where he went after Baltimore City, uh, you know, it's just, it was phenomenal work, if I do say so myself with him. Yeah, I mean, I, it seems like such, a, because I think the thing is, it's, as you were saying earlier, it's one thing to sort of anticipate these, you know, what the defenses might be and then make sure you kind of, um, that you sort of foreclose those for what's going to happen at trial and to be prepared if they go, if, um, if they try to change their testimony at trial, but that's such an insane amount of work to actually do that well and to do that right. And to do that over the, you know, consistently over the course of two years. And you all were clearly able to do that because, I mean, that was one of the things that struck me both reading the complaint and thinking about the trial in this case is that how, because of it, of the, because of it happening, you know, in a prison, there's so much information and so many witnesses and things that by design you can't get to or you can't find out. Yvonne, you're exactly right. This is Carrie. You know, what I would say to you is I, I appreciate uh, your kind words, but it, it, it really, when you have a case like this and when you look into the eyes of a client that suffered this kind of injury, it's a more like a moral obligation uh, to give it the uh, work that it deserves and, and to give it whatever you have to, to bring all of that to the trial table, uh, because this is not a situation in which, uh, you know, uh, uh, anything less than your absolute best would do uh, because of how uh, drastically he was injured uh, and how corrupt this system is. Uh, you're also right that in the closed confines of the prison system, it is very difficult to do discovery. Uh, if we want to speak with prisoners, for instance, we go to a place where life or death decisions are made over them by the people we are suing. Right. And we sit down the hall from the people we're suing, uh, knowing that we're going to turn these these people, these witnesses, back over to their custody when we leave that facility. And when the witnesses we're trying to talk to know that they're going back into the custody of the people we're suing when we leave, and we won't be there uh, at night, uh, during the day, at any time other than those interviews. Uh, and so it is uh, a blessing to us and to the system and frankly to justice when we do occasionally find people who are brave enough to come forward. Uh, one of the people in this case that did come forward was the former cellmate of Daquan Wallace, who testified that when Mr. Wallace was brought to uh, the cell for the first time, that the cellmate was sent away. Uh, and it, this was particularly shocking to the cellmate because it was about 20 minutes early for, for dinner. And he was being told, leave the cell and, in effect, wander the prison, uh, you know, unescorted, unguarded, uh, about 20 minutes early. Uh, and 
he knew immediately there was something wrong. And he's the man, of course, who came and discovered uh, that his cellmate had been uh, beaten and was in a coma. And so we rely on brave people like that to come forward and testify despite the risk that they face in being, in effect, uh, thrown back into the custody of the very uh, uh, officers who may have been involved in the misconduct to begin with. Uh, so we rely on the bravery of those people, but we also do a lot of work uh, to help them realize that unless people stand up and do something about this type of misconduct, it will continue. And right. today it's Dequan Wallace. Tomorrow it might be a friend of yours, a family member, uh, or you yourself. And, and I think that realization helps people uh, come forward and make sure justice is done, whether they're a fellow prisoner, a, a judge, a member of the jury, or anybody else. So um, I was I was wondering, I mean, this case obviously has very egregious uh, facts and circumstances, but at the same time, you're still talking about somebody who was in prison, uh, even though, even if it was for a misdemeanor. And I guess I'm wondering, uh, you know, during jury selection or or uh, did you run focus groups to come up against, you know, biases you might get from a jury because this happens in a prison setting? And I know you guys have handled a number of these cases, so I, I, you can probably speak more than just about Daquan's case, but just the types of biases you run up against and how you, uh, how you counter those with the jury? Sure. I, there are obviously tremendous biases, uh, it, and they run in both directions in these cases. So keep in mind, this is the worst of the worst in terms of bias. We have our clients who are frequently uh, prisoners or arrestees, and they are, so there is a bias against them, and they are suing either police officers or correctional officers and the bias runs in favor of the police and correctional officers. And, uh, you know, we are not believers uh, that all police are problematic, all correctional officers are problematic. We are enormous believers in the fact that a very small percentage uh, of officers who engage in misconduct uh, can do an enormous amount of harm, both to the public, uh, to the arrestee or detainee or prisoner, and in fact, to their fellow officers as they erode public confidence uh, in policing and public confidence in corrections work. So the way we try to communicate to juries to overcome these biases is to remind them that the true measure of a society is how a society treats its most vulnerable citizens. And in a situation like this, it is hard to be more vulnerable to your government uh, then to have your very well-being uh, decisions like whether you eat and when, whether you receive medical care and when, who you speak to and when, uh, when you sleep, uh, minor things like what you wear, what, when the lights are on and off, where you go, your physical freedom, are entirely in the hands, in the case of a prisoner, of our government. And, and the measure of you and I as people, uh, as the measure of all of us collectively as a society, is always how we treat the most vulnerable. It's, it's, it's never, if you think about it in your personal life, it's not how you treat your boss. It's how you treat the people below you on the uh, uh, decision-making tree at your office. It's not how you treat your date at the restaurant. It's how you treat the waiter. Uh, that's the true measure of anyone. And, and we try to explain that if one amongst us loses their rights, their constitutional protections, then we all do, uh, and we suffer and are debased as a society, as a group, uh, and collectively. 
Uh, so again, today it might be Daquan Wallace. Tomorrow, ultimately, it might be anyone else. And, and that is very true of our constitutional rights because they apply uh, to all of us in a very equal way by design of our founders. And so once we uh, agree amongst ourselves that there are uh, first or second class citizens based on any measure, whether they might be arrestees, whether they might uh, find themselves incarcerated, we are in effect giving the government permission to decide who has rights and who doesn't. Uh, and once we give that permission, uh, we have permitted ourselves to all be the subject of losing our rights. And so we spend an enormous amount of time communicating both the importance of those rights uh, and ultimately the fact that we could all be the next victims uh, to our juries. And, and that's important so that they understand uh, what it is that ultimately is at stake. Because as bad as the facts are in this case and as horrible as the injuries were, uh, you know, you have a man in a wheelchair, you have a man who can't speak, uh, he can barely communicate with others. As bad as that is uh, for Daquan Wallace, uh, there is something worse uh, for society if we cannot keep each other safe and give each other the minimum protections that the Constitution requires. So we ultimately try to communicate that very point. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. One more thing on the legal front. Uh, as you both know, one of the ways to try to address bias head-on before trial begins is through the voir dire process. Maryland has a very, very limited voir dire. We do not have open voir dire. We are not allowed to sit down and ask people which way they lean on whatever topic that is addressed. Uh, but I think the trial judge did a pretty decent job um, doing a, what I would call a relatively full uh, breath voir dire in order to get out. Interestingly enough, this was the second time in my career with an all-female jury. Um, it doesn't really oh, wow. happen that way, but it did in this case. And one of the things that you find is, uh, again, as Carrie said, people don't like criminals and they do like police. Uh, now, we are in Baltimore City. That has changed, especially, uh, you know, I don't know if you both know, Department of Justice came in, the Civil Rights Division in August of 2016. 
and they announced the outcomes of their investigation, it was not flattering to the Baltimore City Police Department. Right. Uh, I don't think, for the most part, the jurors in Baltimore City make the distinction between the state employees and the Baltimore City employees. I could be wrong. Uh, that was never addressed, but clearly that was my thought. Uh, you know, I just, I look at this and as um, day after day, as, as uh, common as the cold that I have now, I just see that these assaults occur on the system. And they, as Carrie said, they occur on the people who can afford it the least. And uh, in this case, things could have gone very differently. Uh, unlike the Freddie Gray matter where mm -hmm. crowds took to the street and they grieved and an investigation ensued. Well, the investigation ended and typically, predictably, nothing changes in the end. So, you know, we as lawyers and there's a group of attorneys, <clears throat> at least in the state of Maryland, who focus on these civil rights cases. You know, but the reality is there are limitations on what we're able to get. And that's problematic because the state knows it, the city knows it, the local governments know it. So that's problematic for us. <laughs> with, with um, I, I'm wondering with uh, Daquan, we, we talked about this, we touched on this earlier that, that you know, he, he's not able to talk. I think it was initially not understood how much he, com he could communicate and then, um, I think his family was sort of discovered that he was able to communicate more than um, maybe they initially thought. Can you talk a little bit um, um, both about that and then also what you did with Daquan at trial? I know it sounded like he was there for the opening. And so I'm wondering um, how much he was there and what you all did with his testimony and, and how you did it. Sure. This is Kerry. Daquan's story and that of his family is really just a beautiful story of love. I mean, so to give you an idea, he was initially in a coma and his family was told that they should institutionalize him. And in effect, forget about Daquan, leave him in the uh, custody of the state for the rest of his life. And I asked uh, his father, uh, who's, who is not his biological father, but married his mother when Daquan was young, what the family discussion was like when they got that recommendation from the doctors, when they were told you should institutionalize your son. And he looked at me without understanding what I was asking and said, Mr. Hansel, that, what do you mean? What discussion? There was no discussion. None of us ever considered that we might not take our son home. This is our son. How could anyone uh, deliver them into the hands of the state, especially after what happened while he was in the custody of the state? And uh, so the family took him home, and these are not medical professionals or people with training to do this, and over the course of years at home have gotten him to the point, uh, beginning in a coma, moving to a point where they were told, in effect, he would never uh, communicate. His eight-year-old sister, ultimately, uh, was able to prop a cell phone up, and his family, through training and stretching and working with him, was able to get him to use his fingers enough mm. to text. And that was the first moment when any of us knew uh, 
to what extent Daquan, the man, the person, was still in this body, was still in there. Uh, prior to that, he had had no means of communication from, for over a year and was, in effect, locked in, initially in a coma and then out of a coma, but unable to communicate. And his eight-year-old sister is the one who ultimately made the breakthrough and found out he could communicate. And when I asked Daquan at trial what that was like to be locked in and not to be able to communicate uh, and how it was, for instance, that uh, he got help during those times, he said, well, my mother and father took care of me. And I said, yes, but if, if you were hungry and you couldn't tell them, uh, how was it that they were able to communicate with you? And I expected him to say it was awful. I, I couldn't communicate with them. But instead, uh, his answer shows how dedicated they were and uh, what type of treatment he received. When I said, when you couldn't communicate, what was it like to be hungry? And he said, Mr. Hansel, uh, my mother knows me. She knew when he was hungry and knew when he needed to eat. And the way he communicated that at trial was by using the skills that his eight-year-old sister uh, ultimately had discovered and helped him learn. And we had a paralegal sit behind him uh, uh, with him in front and before the jury so that her voice uh, was his voice and came from him at trial. And he would text his answers to our questions and uh, the paralegal then would read them from behind him so that the jury uh, could hear and understand his responses. Uh, and the effect, I think, was very powerful because it demonstrated uh, the very deliberate and hard work he had to put into trying to control his fingers to provide responses and the limitations that he suffered while still communicating uh, to the jury uh, all of his responses. Uh, it, we also uh, uh, had him there and present with us uh, throughout the entire trial, and he did a very careful job of observing and listening and was able to send us text messages during trial uh, to participate to the greatest extent he could. So uh, wow. his bravery and the strength of uh, his personal strength and that of his family, I think, came through very well. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Uh, he, he had no memory of the event, though, is that right? Yes, and, and that largely, not largely, that was due entirely to his uh, brain injury right. often. And we had experts that Larry did an excellent job of presenting a trial who talked about uh, the type of traumatic brain injury uh, that he suffered uh, that not only affects his mind's ability to control the rest of his body, uh, not only meant the loss of his voice, but also meant the loss of some cognitive function, including memory of the event. So he remembers... Uh, uh, initially being arrested. He remembers being uh, committed to custody, but after that has no memory until he comes out of his coma. So he very much was in a position where, uh, you know, we had to recreate events uh, by careful depositions and careful discovery of the defendants themselves. The records were in almost the exclusive control uh, of the defense, and so we had to uh, learn what we learned through discovery. And as Larry said earlier, through the Public Information Act requests that we filed pre-trial. And, and I guess I'm just wondering, I assume they didn't, but did they try to cross-examine Daquan at all? Uh, to a very limited extent, and I think wisely to a limited extent, 
because he had no memory of the events, he didn't have much to offer there. And most, most any effort to cross-examine Dequan would only uh, illustrate further, I think, some of his limitations in, in right. physically being able to respond. Uh, they did attempt to very aggressively uh, cross-examine his mother, uh, and his mother is a very strong uh, woman who has been a marvelous advocate uh, for her son. Uh, and if she had the benefits, uh, frankly, that I've had in life of, of some of the training I've had, I would probably be offering her a job in my law right. firm. Right. Uh, so, so she did an excellent job. And at one point, while she was being cross-examined, I felt more like she was cross-examining the, de- the defense lawyer instead of the <laughs> other way around. And so I'm very proud of her for that. Yeah, I I, um, I was wondering about this. They, it, I, I saw on the verdict form that there was a question where they where they could um, um, find that that Daquan was contributorily negligent, and I also saw that there was at least some claim by the defense that he should have asked for for protective custody, or there's something more he could have done. And I guess I'm just wondering how that uh, defense played for. Uh, for them, obviously it, it didn't play well, but I mean, the, this, you know, trying to blame him for what, what happened to him, yeah, it seems bl- like a very risky defense. But bl- blaming the, it's Larry, but blaming the victim never works in any case and, or rarely works in any case, especially when you're intelligent and, you know, for the jury to sit there and to hear this blaming of a guy who's sitting in a wheelchair, who can't walk, who can't talk. Uh, that's an extremely risky move. Um, the reason that's done in the state of Maryland is we're one of four states left that right. have contributory negligence. And so what in, I would not say all cases, but in the majority of cases, uh, all you need is 1% to win. And, you know, in those cases, defense attorneys stand up and I don't care if it's a medical malpractice case, an automobile crash, these types of cases, all they have to do is stand up and say, that victim did 1% at fault, and Jory, you have to find that he contributed to his injury. Mm-hmm. And then you're done. And, you know, judges, for the most part, if there is a reasonable ground, you know, reasonable basis to support it, they let it go to the jury. Well, and I guess I'm just wondering, are you allowed to explain to the jury what happens if they find them 1% contributory, sure, contributory so- negligent? Sure. In any closing argument, uh, typically if there's, um, I won't say merit, but if I foresee that there's a real strong contributory contributory negligence argument, I bring it up early and often. I bring it up in opening. I bring it up in direct of my client. I bring it up in usually I call the defendants. I bring it up in their direct, and then I bring it up in closing. And the purpose of that is I won't talk politics now, but there are certain powers that be who, who, um, if you say something enough, the other side just gets not necessarily numb to it, but yeah, it's unfortunate. And for the other side, all they need to do is to poke one hole in the bag. As I say, Uh, I teach trial advocacy at the law school here at university of Baltimore. And the long and short of it is I tell my students, whichever side of the law they choose to go into, if they do trial work, you need to understand how important that burden is and, and that role of law is of contributory negligence. You can use it as a sword or as a shield. 
And yeah. so the jury is informed either through charges or what you're permitted to argue that that one percent, even one percent to the plaintiff would would mean that they don't recover anything. Sure. So in addition to what lawyers do, uh, the judge reads the jury instruction, which explains to them how contributory uh, contributory negligence affects the outcome. And usually, again, on the verdict sheet, if the answer is yes to that, you go no further. It actually says on the verdict sheet, if yes, stop here. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. <laughs> oh, man. We are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers. We're trial. Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers. And plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens? When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access Case Pacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure, anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from any time, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out CasePacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's CasePacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. I'm wondering, you know, so, you know, because of your case and it sounds like other cases uh, like it and then the, you know, eventual closing of this detention center and, I'm I'm wondering, has the prison system in Baltimore City gotten better or, I mean, what's the status of it now? So this is Kerry. We see these cases statewide. Uh, my office has a dozen or more right now, either in litigation or under investigation. And here's fundamentally the problem. The state of Maryland has a budget of about $41 billion annually with a B. There is a cap on recovery, no matter what the injury in a case like this, in this case, of $200,000. If that cap applies, understand the effect of that. $200,000 against a $41 billion budget is, is less than one 1,500th of that budget. 
So to put it in perspective, for an average person who makes $50,000 a year, an average family, a fine of $30, a $30 parking ticket, has the same relationship to $50,000 as this cap, if it applies, has to the state budget. So you can imagine a world in which you could do anything you wanted and the maximum it could cost you, no matter the harm, no matter the injury, no matter the pain, no matter the medical bills, no matter the cost to anyone else, was a $30 ticket. You begin to realize that that is no disincentive at all for wrongdoing. And so when the worst fine that can be laid against the state of Maryland is the effective equivalent of a $30 fine, it's no penalty at all. Mm -hmm. And you see a situation like Daquan's where he will be <clears throat> continuing medical care for the rest of his life, almost on a 24-hour basis. This man cannot feed himself. He cannot transfer from a wheelchair to, not to be too graphic, but to a toilet himself. So this is a man who needs care and help almost 24 hours a day to do the ordinary things that we do just to live, just to survive. I'm not suggesting he's entitled to uh, a luxurious life, although maybe he is, but I'm telling you just to live, this man needs 24 hour care and the type of uh, compensation he would receive if this cap is applied, uh, wouldn't last six months for the type of care he needs right. and would be no greater than a $30 fine or the equivalent as against the state budget. So there is no meaningful reform so long as these caps are left in place in Maryland. And so what we see again and again and again are juries entering just judgments against their own government after the government has a full and fair trial Judges upholding those judgments in terms of challenges that they're either too high or that other uh, rules were violated. So these are just judgments that have been ruled just by the judge, that have been found by a jury of citizens against their own government, that then are arbitrarily uh, demolished by this cap. And as a result, there's absolutely no incentive to fix things and no disincentive for wrongdoing. The government pays its $30 fine and goes on uh, to ruin the next life and the next life and the next life because, because honest and accurate correction of the problem, reform, would be far more expensive. So as a result, what we have done in this case is challenged the cat and pointed out that under the Maryland Constitution, uh, we are entitled to a recovery, that Daquan Wallace is entitled to justice. And uh, we're waiting for the trial judge, and we're very confident in this trial judge uh, that the cap challenge will succeed here, uh, where uh, some others have failed in the past. But, but we believe that we have a very strong argument that a man who is rendered helpless for the rest of his life as a result of these types of egregious violations ought to be entitled to more than a $30 fine against the state, which is what the equivalent of this cap is. So that so uh, yeah, and you're talking about the uh, this is brought under the Maryland Tort Claims Act, and Correct. there's a cap of two hundred thousand, and and so your argument for the cap to not apply is because this is a constitutional violation, or is it because his damages are so uh, in excess of of the cap, or is it both? I guess all of the above and then some. So here's the answer. I'll break it down from a legal perspective. Uh, in the Maryland Constitution, 
there is an amendment referred to as Article 19. Article 19 guarantees all of us a remedy for any wrong done in the courtroom. In other words, it is your access to justice. It is your access to the courtroom in the state of Maryland, where the remedy is so small that it provides no justice at all, that is the equivalent of no remedy at all, uh, there is a violation of Article 19. So in this case, to suggest that an amount of money that is such a small percentage of what the jury awarded violates Article 19. Also, it, this case is complicated by the fact that the state has liens against this judgment by law for the amount of medical expenses it has paid. So those liens are greater than $200,000 already. And Daquan has lived a very small portion of the rest of his life. It's only been five years since the injury and he, he's in his 20s now and he will live a full life expectancy. He has another 60 years to live. So the medical liens are greater than the cap. If the cap is upheld, Here's what will happen, as grotesque as this is. The state will write a check to Daquan, Daquan of $200,000. Daquan will write his entire portion back to the state because of the medical lien. So the wrongdoer here actually pays him briefly, and then he has to refund that money back to the wrongdoer because of the medical bills it has already paid over the past five years. So it's absolute uh, lunacy. And it's hard to imagine a less just system than one in which your wrongdoer gets a refund for the medical bills that you suffer and then pays not one cent more. So in this case, Daquan Wallace could very realistically, if these caps are applied, end up with not one penny, despite spending the rest of his life in the wheelchair and the crushing medical expenses and the care that his family has to render him on a 24 hour basis. Well, and I, I, I read in one of the articles uh, in, uh, about uh, this case that um, it sounds like there was a lawyer who had a, um, a judgment against the, I think maybe it was Prince George's County and argued that the cap shouldn't apply. And I think the Maryland Court of Appeals uh, applied the cap. So I guess I'm just wondering how, uh, in light of that, how are you guys feeling about, uh, about the court in the Maryland Court of Appeals? We feel very confident. We have a court in Maryland which never shies away from doing justice. Uh, and there are some distinctions. So past challenges have sometimes been successful and sometimes not, depending on the particular case. There has never been a challenge in which the client under this cap in which the client would get zero. Right. And in this case, the client would get zero because of the medical lien. To make matters worse, this is the case where the judgment is against the state and the medical lien is also held by the state. So not only does the client get zero, but the state gets a refund back to the state. So the state pays nothing from the perspective of the client's share and the client gets nothing. So right. this is the situation where the portion of the justice system that is meant to punish wrongdoers is broken. Because if this cap applies, the wrongdoer has no punishment. The portion of the justice system that is meant to compensate victims also fails. Because if the cap applies and the lien is applied to the cap, the money goes right back to the state. 
And so this is the unique case where Article 19 is very clearly triggered and the right to compensation, the right to justice, the right to the courtroom is utterly and completely denied in every way. Uh, and we have, uh, uh, we have a, as a society, have failed this man and have failed the institution of justice if this cap applies. And that's fundamentally what makes this case different from every other case uh, where these arguments have been attempted. Steve, there's actually one more issue. The fact that our system is set up where it allows a jury, a group of six individuals to sit for weeks or months on end, and I'm talking about this type of case that's governed by the Tort Claims Act. Weeks on end, the jury is never told about the cap. So they are sitting there allowed to deliberate, which could take weeks or months. And then their decision is read in open court. They go home thinking they've done justice. And with a strike of a pen, their 25 million could be struck down to 200. They have right. wasted the taxpayer's money for zero. Now, that's not the way a system should work. Why would you change your behavior if it doesn't matter one thing what you do, you go on the air and if you, uh, you know, de uh, defame somebody and you can't be sued, you can't be held accountable, you're going to keep doing it. So that's a problem. Oh, and in this particular case, everything that was proven ultimately before the jury, the state knew beforehand. Right. Nothing was new. They never offered the cap. You know, and why should they? The most that could happen in their minds is they get hit for the cap. Yeah, yeah. It makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, it's, I mean, even, uh, it's one of the lowest caps I've ever heard of, uh, you know, and, and much lower than what's in Georgia, even, but even in Georgia, Daquan's case would be, um, uh, uh, severely underfunded. But um, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is you also have a, uh, uh, a section 1983 case pending in federal court. You want to talk about the status of that and, and, um, and, and how you're pursuing that along with this case? Sure. So in federal court, we have a 1983 case, which is the federal civil rights law. Uh, we're pursuing that against the individual officers. There is an interesting uh, quirk of federal law where under the 11th Amendment of the United States Constitution, the state itself has immunity. So we're not entitled as citizens of the United States to sue our state governments in federal court. Instead, we can only sue the individual officers. So we, in this case, sued the state government in state court because that was the only avenue open to us to sue the state government and then brought a federal claim against the individual uh, officers. We also have uh, reserved for the federal case our future economic damages. Uh, so in the state case, what we presented in effect invo involved the pain and suffering that Daquan felt that was his psychological, mental pain and suffering, and not the future medical bills and, and medical damages. So those we're going to present in state court. So in that way, both the claims are different, meaning we have federal constitutional claims versus state constitutional claims. The defendants are different because we have in federal court the individuals and in state court the state itself. And the damages are different because in state court we dealt with the pain and suffering that Daquan felt and in federal court we will deal with his medical bills. We did that 
because we wanted to bring the maximum amount of pressure against the state of Maryland and against these individual officers that was available to our client. Uh, we have two sets, obviously, of discovery, and we're entitled to two juries because those efforts are so different. Uh, now, it remains to be seen uh, uh, what the federal court will do with the case. There are uh, motions currently pending in federal court, and we're waiting to see how those are resolved. But we have a lot of faith, uh, both in our federal and state court justices, uh, or judges, rather. What we see over time is that judges, uh, despite sometimes feeling hamstrung by very unfair and unreasonable laws, are willing to do justice uh, and ultimately do do a very uh, good job in our cases of delivering justice to our clients. So we have a, uh, we feel very confident about the federal case. In the federal case, we do not have the caps to worry about. Uh, and so as we move forward in that case, uh, any judgment would be uncapped uh, and we will pursue obviously uh, the defendants there to the full extent of the law. Well, it's, uh, I mean, it, first of all, it's just a, a fascinating case. It's an important case uh, and a very deserving client. And and um, and Carrie and Larry, I, I want to thank you guys. You've done a, a tremendous work and, and um, really appreciate your time. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure our listeners uh, have heard about the, uh, the case of Wallace versus the state of Maryland? Sure. So this is Carrie. I, I think the most important takeaway is that there is still gross injustice uh, in society, in our prison system, in policing, but there are people who are brave enough to stand up against it. And I'm talking now about our clients who come forward. Uh, there are also members of the system who come forward, whether they're police officers or correctional officers. And there are lawyers who are willing to hear your story and do something about it. There is change yet to be made, uh, and this is a fight that continues. Uh, we're very proud to say that, that uh, I think somebody uh, better at this than me once said the arc of history definitely bends <laughs> towards justice, and, and we're proud to see that that has happened over our lifetimes, but there is still a long road to travel, and there, we're here to travel it with anyone willing to stand up and be brave and bring a case like this. And, and I have to compliment uh, my co-counsel, Larry Greenberg, uh, in his efforts along those lines and in uh, uh, communicating that to this particular client and making sure uh, that we were able to see the courtroom and see some justice done. And I'll, I'll hand the microphone to Larry. I just have two quick things to say. Jerry Spence said that the police are the progeny of power. So, when you look at the big picture and you hit the nail on the head, nothing's going to change until they answer to us. And us are all of us. It's the public. We pay salaries. And again, not all police. I, I know tons of police officers who are great people. They don't violate these rules. They, they're phenomenal. Um, but, uh, you know, not answering to juries, that's a problem. And when a jury sits for weeks and months on end, I have a problem with that, for, especially for you know, the wrongs that were proven here. Um, you mentioned Oz. The one thing I will say is that this is Oz versus the wire. Because right. you know, right. Maryland, Baltimore specifically, has really come under fire in the past few years. And while it's unfortunate, I think change can come about. 
Well, I, I mean, like I said, I mean, this is a, a tremendously deserving client and, uh, and fantastic work. And, uh, and you guys did a, a tremendous job and, and we wish the best to you in pursuing this uh, uh, through to full justice. And, um, and, and uh, uh, have no doubt that you'll uh, put every effort behind it because you guys have done a fantastic job uh, thus far. But I want to remind our listeners that we have been talking to uh, Carrie Hansel and Larry Greenberg. Carrie is a partner at Hansel Law, and you can look them up at hansellaw.com, and that's H-A-N-S-E-L-Law.com. And then Larry Greenberg is a partner at Greenberg Law Offices, and you can look up uh, Larry at greenberglawyers.com. They're both located in, in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And we have been talking about the case of uh, Wallace versus the state of Maryland uh, tried in the city court of Baltimore and resulted in a $25 million verdict uh, on behalf of Daquan Wallace. Uh, Carrie and Larry, thank you so much for your time and, uh, and thank you for uh, just a great interview. Thank you, Stephen Yvonne. We really appreciate your work. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.